You're listening to Geeks Unleashed, a podcast that covers what's current in the world of pop culture. I'm Mark Brassington, and I'm in London. And I'm Jasmine in Texas. Hello, welcome to Geeks Unleashed. This is episode 69. If you are not already subscribed, you can find us at Geeks Unleashed everywhere, including your favorite podcast platform. Remember, five-star reviews help us get found by more listeners, so please rate and review Geeks Unleashed on Apple or Podchaser. Our apologies. We had technical and connectivity issues with this episode. Promise it's a great conversation. Please stick with it. But we do apologize in advance for the audio quality. I'm Mark. And, and I'm, I'm Jasmine. Joined... Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Stepping uh, on your toes, man. No, no worries. <laughs> very eager. Very eager over there. <laughs> very eager over there in Texas. Anyway, okay. um, for this week's episode, we're kicking off this month's conversation by speaking to the founder, owner, and director of Ace Comics, Martin Ava. Hello there. <laughs> Hello, Mark. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. And um, we actually believe it's uh, your shop's 40th anniversary, and you had a pretty big birthday recently. Um, so hopefully both of those things have been going well for you. Yeah, well, we've been, I've been trading for 40 years. <clears throat> I, was, I was 66, uh, so I can get the UK state pension now, which is a bit scary. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's always nice to have uh, extra income, I guess, if you need it. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so before we jump into anything else, like the interview, one of the things I, I actually wondered was, and you actually got it because we're for people listening we're recording via zoom and it actually comes up on the screen as um uh rather than martin you've put biff i'd love to know because it's on your website as well mark it says martin and then biff in the middle i'd love to know where the biff came from yeah the story of biff is that uh, my brother-in-law had a girlfriend back when i was about 23 <clears throat> and she just turned around to me one day and said i don't think you look like a martin <laughs> and for some reason yeah uh for some reason she just said you look like a biff and i said what do you mean hit me and she said no i think you should be called biff <laughs> and, and it kind of just stuck I, I suppose everyone was amused and from then on I, I was known as biff um i didn't always use that uh, in the comic world but i had a couple of people working for me believe it or not called martin and it got a bit confusing because if someone called out Martin, it'd have two or three voices going, yeah. <laughs> and, um, they decided to start calling me by my nickname. And then everyone just always has called me by my nickname. Do your, do it, your family, uh, do your family call you Biff as well? Yeah, my wife. Well, they, they not so much now <laughs> because after a while, because everyone was calling me Biff, it became a treasure to call me Martin. So my best friends now call me Martin. It sounds oh. stupid, almost like Martin is my nickname because Biff is my name instead yeah. of the other way around. But I know it's interesting to hear. Like I love how like people get their, their nicknames or where they come from, and it's just uh, it's got like I love that though. You look like a Biff. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I was a bit worried because I thought she was going to hit me. Uh, I thought she, I thought she said you deserve a Biff, but no, she said no. You look like a Biff. <laughs> So now I that don't we've... think my face. Yeah, so I don't <laughs> think my face is squashed or anything. But I look like I've been lift, but. Uh... So now that we know your your name origin, how did you get into comics? Like, if you had a secret hero origin story, what what would that uh, look like? Well, it, 
as a young lad, I, I, I wasn't a quick reader. I, I could read, but I now have discovered I suffer from something called aphantasia, which means I cannot picture anything in my mind. And so I found it very difficult reading books because I could read the words, but it, it conjured nothing up. And then my parents bought me comics and I devoured those up. And then I discovered American comics that were on the newsagent racks. And once I really got into reading the American comics, I found that I did enjoy reading books as well because my desire to be able to see something which I couldn't from books, was supplied to me by comics. And uh, this is back in a day when you couldn't uh, get a regular source of comics. I'd spend my weekends on my bicycle cycling around the... Uh, I lived in outer London areas now, but I just I would cycle miles and miles going to every newsagent I could find to, to uh, discover what comics might be on their shelves. And my favourite at the time, and the one I... I linked to really becoming obsessed was Daredevil and it was the issue where Daredevil disclosed his identity to Karen Page. Oh, wow. I think that was oh. issue, issue 57. Uh, and I don't know why, but I do sort of feel that was the, the turning point where it went from just enjoying to becoming, maybe as possession is too strong a word, but I was <laughs> passionate, yeah, passionate more than the average person. Uh, well, I think I think we're well, I think we're there with you, like in terms of our passion for pop culture and comics. So yeah, you, you said you said just now that you started with UK comics and then found American. So I know, like, yeah. obviously, I'm in the UK as well. So I know when people say UK comics, you think of like Judge Dredd and Beano and Dandy and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then you found American. Like I've always personally preferred American over UK comics. Like, was it is there any UK comics that you preferred, or is it just literally was that like the gate? gateway to the American well the I, I used to get lion which used to have lots of comic was, was all comic strips and yeah. uh, there were very many adventure stories in there called like Kelly's eye and the spider and many many more uh, that that I really really enjoyed I used to get the lion and it it went through like British comics did many different names because it was the lion then it got absorbed into another comic and was called lion and hotspur or and then it got that got absorbed into another comic uh but yeah i mean i really enjoyed all those uh, action comics i used to enjoy the beano and all the oh, action yeah, yeah. there like general jumbo and <laughs> the cat um my favorite was q bikes because uh, i was always out on my bike and that was a group of five or six children who called themselves a Q-Bikes, they had great helmets on, they, it was get by a radio, and they'd go out and solve crimes in the local neighbourhood. <laughs> uh, so I suppose that was my first, when I became quite passionate about right from wrong, because in my head I was on the Q-Bikes, cycling around looking for evildoers. And then I, uh, that was later on for those uh, Smash, Pow, Wham, Terrific and Fantastic started and they were the uk comics that reprinted the marvel comics and uh, and they were in plentiful supply and they were there every week and that's when my diet turned more to the american comics than the british comics uh 
and my father was a lecturer in the London College and he taught a lot of American students and he saw my interest in comics and he would bring me home a, a monthly dose of Justice League of America, Superman, Le Legion of Superheroes and things like that, which alas, I wasn't allowed to keep. Um, they went back to the students. Uh, but, uh, and that was my sort of route into the, the source material, which I then was out on my bike, as I said, trying to find them. It was like the Holy Grail. If I found a news agent that had American comics, well, I, my heart was fit to bursting. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I've shared that. I've been, I've been in places sometimes. I don't know. Uh, I've been. I don't know if you've seen this, but sometimes because it's really random, you'll go to a market like in the UK, and I don't know if you've ever seen randomly. There's some guy with a market stall selling comics. And yes, I like, yes. I suddenly I'll be like, oh, like I have no interest in going to markets. And like suddenly I'll be like, oh, there's something good here. Like, and I'll, <laughs> like, well, I, I'm like, I have actually once ran off from my wife when I saw a stall selling comics. She goes, like, she goes, she goes, I, I was standing next to her, and she goes, and the next you were standing by the stall. I was like, yeah, sorry, I was gone. Right, so, um, uh, when when I so um, before we start uh, recording, I mentioned um, that I speak to Guy uh, who works for you a lot, and I spoke to Guy the other day, and he mentioned that you've. Um, because obviously when you've been running a business and obviously running a business, you get busy. But he said um, you've recently been going back and reading stuff that you sort of missed whilst you were busy running the business. I just wondered, like, what stuff have you been going back and reading that you missed out on? Well, it wasn't so much that I missed out on. Uh, I decided to start reading Daredevil from number one again. Oh, really? Oh, all right. Okay. Yeah. When uh, at, the, at the very start, when there was a bit more time for a, a month or two, you know, while the shop was shut, uh, yeah. there were no comics being produced. And uh, so I was sitting in my back garden and just slowly going through them, rebagging, putting them in oh. nice mylar sleeves. Yeah. <laughs> and going through. <laughs> and, but I, I was also slightly disappointed because reading the, these all now with a, an adult's mind, they weren't quite as exciting as I remembered them. Some of them were. <laughs> I know. But That's I, yeah. I could see so many plot holes in certain stories. I thought, how did I actually believe this? <laughs> I do have to say, like, when I go back and read, I, I go back and read sort of comics from when, because I started getting into comics in the 90s, and I, uh, one of the first comics I remember reading was um, Thunderbolt. So when I go back and read one of those comics, I'm like, this is so badly written. Like, just, <laughs> like, but, but you don't think about it back then because you're enjoying the comic. So, yeah. um, you said just something I was just curious that you said you went back and started reading Daredevil from number one then. Do you have all of Daredevil from number one? Like, have you? Got well, I, I, alas, I don't have number one anymore. In a, in a fit of generosity, one of my staff, we're going back about 15 or 20 years he had every single daredevil except for number one and my copy was slightly tatty and i thought i'm i'll i'll find a, a nicer one and i gave it to him as a christmas present uh to complete his then set and i've never come across another one that i could justify spending the money on so i yeah. i'm sad number one but yeah I, i've got the rest because i've been reading since uh, 1963 uh, so uh, i i actually had them when they first came out so other, uh, other I did, than oh sorry go ahead yeah, sorry, yeah 
I was just going to say, I, other I, than like the story changing or you realizing like there are massive plot holes in these stories, is the feeling yeah. of reading comics still the same? Like, do you still kind of get the same enjoyment out of it that you did when you were younger? Uh, with certain ones, yes. I, I'm not that keen on a lot of the modern gritty stories. Yeah. They work as a standalone, but one of the real reasons I loved comics was that there was, besides the hero, he had or she had a background group of friends, family, etc., that used to grow with the hero. And I was quite happy with the fact that over the years that back cast would change. Say, like with Iron Man, he'd have quite a changing cast. So would Captain America. He'd have a changing cast uh, at one he was being a, an artist. Uh, I can't remember now, an artist on what newspapers. I don't think he was doing cartoons, but he was an artist in that and he had a different set of people. And that was as enjoyable as the actual fact he was then off for eight or nine pages fighting Baron Zemo or something. And now I find that it's really the battles are the all. And although there is a backcast, the backcast is nearly always other superheroes as opposed to a love interest or the next door neighbor or or something more banal. But to me, that was crucial to giving it some sort of reality. I, I can share what you mean there. Because like, um, I've, like, I've been, I mainly, um, one of my heroes that I always go back to is Spider-Man. And I loved it when J JMS made Peter Parker a teacher. Like, and you know like you said play around with the careers and and the background isn't all because i actually don't always like it being where the superheroes friendship group are all superheroes i like it when they have a, a normal life mm -hmm. to go back to yes so, that's right yeah yeah i i i don't always see the necessity to make everybody in their life a superhero i do have to say i can i can agree with you there so, well um, i think there's something to be said for friends like that that's lost its touch and i think that's probably movies influence because the the films have become increasingly more popular and people movie audiences love the hero and don't really care about the background characters and it seems like comics is kind of picking up that trend yeah oh no I, i'd agree fully and I, i'm not sure whether it's just unfortunately that's the way i grew up and how i read the bulk of my my comics uh that that is why i still hanker or yearn for that style of I, I, it's difficult to to know which is true because it's too late now for them to start completely changing the way stories are written to make them more like they were in the 60s and 70s because that will most probably die on its feet now but uh, that anyway that for me is my highlight i mean when i i was a big silver surfer fan and uh, i used to have i used to have all the Silver Surfers. I haven't tried to recollect them all because I, I stupidly sold those to buy a car when I was a student. <laughs> and um, the car has since obviously uh, gone to the scrap heap in the sky. Uh, it's a split windscreen. <laughs> it was a 1950s split windscreen Morris Minor. It was a beautiful car. <laughs> um, but uh, the if I got the 18 silver surfers now they would be worth thousands of pounds and uh, oh. my, that car is scrap <laughs> I, I share your pain I don't have anything as old as that but I have sold yeah. comics that are now worth so much money I regret it because like, like you I needed to pay for a car or, or food or bills or whatever it was and, and now I look back and go I should have done something else so, but 
Yeah, I should have found. I don't know how I would have found the money at the time, but uh, but that's just and and also when I first started uh, the business, I put in my collect most of my collection uh, to uh, get it going, and I thought over the years I would be able to siphon off some of the things I was buying, put them back. And although I have done things, I've got a complete set of Master of Kung Fu again now, which was another of my favourites. Um, other things are too costly. So if I've actually bought them back in, I felt, no, I've got to sell that to make a profit to keep the business going. Yeah. Uh, because it, I never quite got into the high stakes. I've been one who's been dealing with a Fantastic Four number one or Amazing Spider-Man number one. So you're talking... 20,000, 50,000, uh, I'm always dealing on the lower scale. So most of the things I sell are between five pounds and 15 pounds. And uh, so if I did get an expensive comic, I had to sell it really just to pay the bills because it's, it's, this may not be something that crosses people's minds very often, but believe it or not, I have to turn over a million pounds in order to pay all my bills because sh- I have the shops, the staff, mm-hmm. and other things. I don't make any money <laughs> until we sold a million pounds. And when I'm urging my staff to maybe sell more, and they know roughly what we're turning over, it may sound odd to them. He's, what a misery. We're turning over a million pounds, and he's not happy. I mean, I am happy, but the sad thing is, you know, my, my rents are £100,000, so I would have to sell because I'm selling cheaper comics, I have to sell £300,000 just to cover my rent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you get on to wages and then you get on to the postage and, uh, you know, I bore anyone who's listening with all that. But, yes, uh, in order to keep everything ticking over, you know, a million pounds. And, what, you know, it just sounds remarkable. Sometimes I said, why? Because <laughs> when I started, I started with a, Margarine tub as a till, <laughs> selling, <laughs> selling uh, just second my comic collection from a, a little shop in Colchester, and I never imagined that for one moment that I would end up turning over more than a million pounds selling comics, and it's quite uh, quite strange when I look back on it like that. I was going to say, um, I think for it's quite a nice little segue actually into. Because so, you found so you founded Ace Comics as, uh, as American Comics Enterprise in 1981, right, yeah. um, and you you initially set it up as a, a mail order before you started as bricks and mortar. Um, yeah, I actually would love to. As I've got so many questions around that, but I'd just mm-hmm. love to initially know like how did you go from the passion of loving those American comics into I'm going to start a business? Like what what made you decide like this is what I want to like do for my for a living? Well, I was working as a trainee accountant uh, in Colchester, uh, still buying comics, but it was still difficult to find them. And I wanted to branch within the company I was working for. Computers were just starting to become a big thing. And I set an, set an exam to train to be a computer programmer within the company. And I got the highest score, apparently, that anyone who'd come to apply to be in the computer department has ever got but i was working in accounts and back in those days you know the, the um, different departments so they employed a thousand or more people 
I wasn't allowed to move from the accounts department to the computer department. So I said, well, if you don't move me, I shall resign. So they said, well, we're not moving you. So I've always been a man who does, follows through on what he says. So if I say <laughs> I'm going to do something, I do it. It's, and so I walked out. I didn't have a job to go to, but I was blowed if they were going to dictate to me. <laughs> um, my wife at the time was working, and uh, we did have one young child. And uh, so I, I took over domestic duties and looked after my two young girls while my wife was out at work. And then I thought, I wonder if I could start getting comics in on a regular basis and just sell them to people in Colchester is what I thought. And that was the germ of the idea. I found out that it's one of those serendipitous events that just as I was thinking that, uh, for, no, I'm trying to think, Titan, Titan Comics as were the um, second distributor to set up in the UK, but they became the the, the only one in the end. Uh, Mike Conroy was the first one to start importing comics from the US and uh, selling them to a few other like-minded people. But Titan then set up, and Titan had just sort of taken off. They may have been going for about a year or so. And I set up an account with them so I could regularly get comics each month. And then I set about, first off, I was just trying to find like-minded people within Colchester. And we, I had a few people who I discovered like comics. And then I thought, oh, there's enough interest. Maybe I'll just do a shop. So I part-time opened up a little shop with my margarine tub as a till <laughs> and, uh, and babysat my young daughters in the back when they were with me uh, one day it still makes me laugh when i think about it my two-year-old daughter katie got off the pot and ran down the street with nothing on <laughs> to, be followed, to be followed by her her father who was his tiny little shop unmanned because my youngest one wasn't actually there at the time uh, sh shouting, come back, come back. I mean, these days I could have been arrested chasing <laughs> a two-year-old down the street. Uh, so, so those were the slightly non-professional way I started up. Uh, I used to smoke back then and customers would come in and we'd be stood in the shop smoking cigarettes with inflammable material all around us. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, and it just slowly worked on from there because I, um, once I get – uh, the bit between my teeth, I thought, well, I've got to do this more professionally. So I then moved to a better shop and that grew. Then I thought I've got to do the mail order I'm doing in a better manner. Cause that was a bit haphazard the way I used to do it. But uh, each time I thought about improving what I'm doing, it serendipitously again was just as people were wanting that type of thing. And I was one of the first people, maybe the, apart from say forbidden planet, I set up a, com a computer website and started, I had a bespoke program written so that I could now s dispense with handwriting invoices and everything. And it had printers to print out invoices. And so I, I've been right there as things happened, as the computers came about, we learned or I learned how to uh, 
use computers so uh, which is why i was so annoyed with this zoom business i i, I was <laughs> never really to use it and i was having great problems getting it to work uh because i've, I've been there i've been uh, i bought my amstrad when the amstrad came out uh <laughs> and every time there's been a new computer system i've bought the new computer system uh and yeah so uh, it the only thing that's held me back is unfortunately i wasn't the first for been for the first main chain and i've never been able to catch them up and a few other people have come and gone in between but when i had my big my big store in colchester opened people would walk in and they thought i was forbidden planet i've had people walk into the store and complain about my service in the store in london and I said, i'm not forbidden. and they would go but you sell comics yes <laughs> <laughs> i've even had emails where people who are buying through subscription on forbidden planet have just got confused and written to me to complain about forbidden planet. Uh, uh it doesn't happen so often now because i think people are more aware but in the early days that's uh but alas even though they were fed up with forbidden planet because i said to the person in culture well why did you go to london when i've got it here I'm not going to swap over the product that's faulty for you now because it's not my company. But if you <laughs> next time, please come in. But they never did come back in. I suspect they carried on shopping in uh, Forbidden Planet. And it's most odd how uh, the perception for people in general is that Forbidden Planet is the place to shop mm -hmm. because that's the name that is known. Um, well, I mean, I see... from Ace Comics. Yeah, I was going to say. Well, I was going to say, I see a lot of people online talking about what shops they buy stuff from. But I see Forbidden Planet is the one that they, most people that are proper comic book fans like myself, slate Forbidden Planet for, you know, they pre-order, the pre-orders never arrive. And, and if they do arrive, they arrive damaged. And most people, I think, tend to use independent. Uh, I think there are a few that, I think from what I can see, it's people that don't really know too much about the comics world tend to deviate towards within a planet because i guess they are the, the bigger name um but most people that are fans don't tend to use within a planet from what i've seen well it all i know and uh, i've had discussions with nick landau forbidden planet i've really hacked him off at times but i've also <laughs> been cheating with him at, at times uh, i've even offered to buy his mail order system off of him because there, there was a point where i was getting lots of these complaints and I had the audacity to contact him and said, would you like me to run it for you? <laughs> uh, well, if you, if you don't ask, you don't get. Well, I yeah, exactly, get. yeah. I, yeah. Um, but it's, uh, I mean, Nick Landau has done a lot for the comic industry. He's, uh, he, he's created or made available lots of paperbacks. Uh, he got graphic novels into the bookshops in this country he's uh, publishing comics himself uh, a lot of people have mixed things to say about him because he is a very good businessman and i have learned to be a good businessman but because i have a a very soft side i've never made as much money as i could have done whereas nick landau has enjoyed comics and enjoys comics but he's never stopped that from making money and people I can understand why they might think that about him, but he's an important force 
uh, and uh, should be respected for that. But yes, it's it's an odd way. Sometimes I go, I wish I was more like Nick Landau because <laughs> yeah. I'd be very rich now, but uh, it doesn't quite. Well, I've had a very nice living. I'm not I'm not a millionaire or anything like that because that's another mis mistake people make. I turn over a million, but I don't make a million. Yeah. No, no. I understand I, I just, that. Like, yeah, I, I mean, I... Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's one of those things. But I think Nick Landau, well, he may not be. I mean, making the same mistake. He, he His is a multi-million uh, million pound business, but I'm sure it's very hard work. Oh yeah, well I mean I know there's a lot of business out there that might have a million or two million turnover. I've seen I've seen them through what I do outside of the podcasting world, and they might turn over two million, but the owner takes home forty grand a year. Like you know, because you know that just because you turn over, uh, what people don't realise is there's turnover, but there's also cost. Like so, yeah. Right, yeah. so uh, it would be great to have a, a, a business where there was just turnover, <laughs> so, like, oh, zero right. cost. Yeah. Yes, yeah. so, I would be a millionaire then. Yeah. <laughs> um, you've got a few different um, shops, and um, so, but I wondered. I was actually really curious because on the mail-in order uh, that I read about, you started that pre-internet. Is that right? Oh yes, yeah. I'd, I'd love to know to how up. mail order worked pre-internet. Like, did 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 people have to post in what they wanted to you, and then you? would fill it in, you know and how did they i just would love to know some oh. of the mechanics of the mail order pre-internet just you know well it was i used to type up my own order forms uh when literally with a typewriter but then when amistrad came along so the first sort of uh computerization came along so i could then put it into the computer it could print me out a much more professional uh piece of typing but there were far fewer comics i mean and back in those days, I was maybe having to list two or three hundred comics. It would just be the Marvel, the DC, and the main uh, other people like Image and Dark Horse or whatever. And I would then post that out. So I had the cost of lot, you know, hundreds of envelopes. I just post it all out, and then people would fill that in, send it back to me, and we place the orders. Um, I used to have more overstock then because the um deadlines are very well they still are tight but they there are now options for us to do reorders up up to a certain point but back then if i guessed it wrong and decided to order 100 copies of something that my customers then only ordered 10 of i was stuck with 90 copies yeah i didn't and there was no way i could drop the that number down some of those i mean i've never thrown anything away so I've certainly after through lockdown, some of my mispurchases from literally 15, 20, 25 years ago have become valuable. And <laughs> it's, you know, and I was so pleased because at times I've looked at my boxes of overstock thinking, I really don't know why I carry this. And there have been times when I thought, I'll just throw these comics in the skip. Uh, but I couldn't bring myself to do it, thank God. And uh, because I've been in it for the long game. So things are generational. So that stuff I'd overbought 20 odd years ago, that generation are thinking back to what they were buying then. And suddenly these comics, not always go up a lot in value, but certain ones have. But then people are interested again, so they start selling. And if I'd thrown them away, I would be impacting on my 
turnover now. So, so that anyway, it was very difficult then. So we, and also the problem was there was a delay. I mean, some of the comics could take six months to come in because we had two options of buying then sea freight and air freight because air freight was very expensive then. So to provide cheaper comics for people, I would uh, bring in half of my stuff would come in sea freight and the rest would come in air freight. Yeah. Which is sometimes worked to my benefit because if the air freight came in and became very popular and everyone else was sold out, then I got my sea freight coming in, which was cheaper, but then was selling for more. Uh, but in general, what happened was that most people couldn't wait. So if there's a new issue coming in, the people who are ordering sea freight stopped ordering sea freight because they everyone decided to go for air freight. And in the end, Titan, who were bringing the stuff in, dispensed with doing sea freight altogether and just went straight to all air freight. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Titan, in their way, they were sending out paper order forms because there was no internet then. But once they the internet started up, they too were then um, started to move towards items, uh, being able to order online. But they were about a decade after myself uh, or and other people because it was more expensive and more complicated for them to get all these um, programs up and running and to be able to link in with the publishers in America. And now it's all very streamlined and is uh, enables all comic shops, if they use their systems properly, to keep a very tight ship because we now have the option, if we made a mistake when we're ordering, if we're paying attention to sales in the shop, within a month of placing the order, on a lot of things, we can then contact them and reduce an order. There are obviously a point where it's too late because it's going to the printers and Mm -hmm. you can't reduce, but more and more publishers are allowing the uh, retailers that, option which is really good so in general my waste is about two or three percent that's, that's oh, yeah guess. that's not bad yeah that's uh, really good but then if you think i spend a million you can you can see i do have a pile of comics sometimes uh, <laughs> well like, like you said though earlier like they might be 50p like back issue bin today but in 20 years time they might be 40 pound a pop like so yes yeah we just sold two comics like that over overnight they went to america but they were comics that would have been three pound they just sold for 50 pound two of them went to an american um but uh, yeah so it's uh i still got another box of about not of the same comic alas but uh it makes up for that box (laughs) I might have 300 comics sitting there and I go, oh, look, I've just sold two comics and I've got a hundred pounds. Well, that that's paid for that box now. What was the comic you sent off to America? That was 50 pounds. Uh, that was a mighty Thor. Um, it was actually a reprint issue. The Americans seem to be very interested in second, third, fourth prints now, which they, it's one of those ideas that people didn't used to consider them worth anything because they wanted the original. Yeah. But now, I mean, I always used to say, I don't understand this because a third print, there might only be a thousand printed, but the original print might have a hundred thousand printed. So, in essence, the scarce one is the third print. Uh, and they seem to, 
have cottoned onto it or a certain branch of collectors in America. Likewise, they are more interested in America now in pence copies, which back in, well, it's only the last 10 years this has happened, but the Americans now see the pence copy as a rare item, whereas before that, they were dismissed as being just a, a British reprint, although it wasn't a British reprint. It was an American copy with a, just the, the front cover had a different bit on it added just so it could be sold in the, the UK market. Uh, so, yes, it's, it's constantly moving now because I think people are look besides reading comics, people are looking for an avenue to collect and because there's such a wide number of comics now, th literally thousands being published every month, people are picking on an area. So there's there's even an American collector who wants the comics that have still got the cardboard adverts that used to be in certain comics for a while. And these were cardboard inserts that were in the 70s, I think. And he only buys the comics if they've got the cardboard insert still in there. <laughs> And he will pay more than the cover price. <clears throat> so if that comic was worth, say, £8 now, if it's got a cardboard insert, he'll pay £16. Mm -hmm. um, because he's decided that his collection is going to have as many of these cardboard inserts as po possible. Whereas I remember collecting them. The first thing I did was I tore the, the cardboard <laughs> insert out and threw them away because I wasn't interested in uh, American – I can't remember what they were selling. Uh, now but it, it could have been cheap jewelry or things like that and uh, or the latest uh, video release or something uh, yeah so it, it's all other and also it, the difficulty now is same with daredevil for which there are 700 odd issues now something like that someone coming in now won't have the money or to go back to number one yeah Besides the fact that number one's really expensive. So they'll collect, say, 25, 50, 75, 100, 125, 100, and they go for a pattern like that. So when you buy in a collection, you'll find that there's certain comics that just won't sell, even if they have a theoretical value. Mm -hmm. People just, in general, can't afford to collect them unless you go, I'm going to get dead. Oh, sorry, that cut but out just then. Sorry, you need it. So uh, well, if you, yeah, so it's it's uh, it, it's difficult to collect, say the whole Marvel range now. You can't. Whereas when I was buying them, there was only a dozen, so you could afford to buy the entire Marvel range. Mm -hmm. I know what you mean. Now, yeah. yeah, there's I think it's about eighty Marvel comics, and about the same for DC every month now. Oh, that's insane. Without going into, yeah. and that's one hundred and sixty comics. If you and they're all of minimum of about three pounds each, the DC are now averaging about four fifty each. So that's if you bought them all, that's a a mortgage almost. <laughs> yeah. Or you could put three kids through college for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we do have some customers who have that sort of deep pocket. It, it's astonishing. I mean, I I'm in a fortunate position because I can speed read lots of comics without having to buy them so I, i'm pretty aware of everything that's going on uh but you'd need to have such a big house as well i'm just thinking i mean it's a lot of comics <laughs> if you're buying 300 say uh, 200 comics a month you know you would assume 
you know, I, I just can't imagine even have, I can't even imagine having the time to read 200 comics a month. I struggle, I get probably about 30 comics a month, and I struggle with just reading those, let alone reading 200 a month. I mean, those oh. people must have like they just, just never watch TV or go out. Or, <laughs> uh, well, no, I agree with you there. Yes, that, that you couldn't. I mean, I, I've got to argue. 30 or 50 a month. Uh, I don't, as I say, some of them I'm just speed reading when I'm actually at work. Uh, but I do read four or five paperbacks as well uh, in the course of a month. So I, I do like to read. Uh, but I don't watch too much telly. I do watch a bit of telly. But when I'm thinking about people who've bought 200, I'm thinking, and they sometimes buy a graphic novel collection. Uh, I presume. Either they do actually, that's all they do. It's very difficult to understand. I know one of my customers who bought heaps, he was on a London commute and he says, well, I read about half a dozen comics on the way to work and half a dozen on the way back. So he said, I'm reading 12 a day. He said, I, I, I soon get through 200 comics, which is what he was buying. And I have to read paperbacks and it doesn't impinge on his working day or his evening because he sat on a train <clears throat> going to London every day. Um, but, uh, you know yeah. how you st you started obviously with mail order, and then you obviously built shops. Oh, and, yeah. and, and then in 2010, you actually kind of went back to your roots a little bit and decided to buy another mail order, but it was an online mail order called an Economic Comics. I just wondered sort of what led to that that decision, and how, how did that come about? Well, I I have actually bought and absorbed about half a dozen small retailer or made order companies along the way oh, so because so, so it's, that's one of many is it that you purchased along the way yeah i mean I, actually it's a bit sad i can't remember the name <laughs> i think the, the first one i absorbed was something called planet x i think and that they set up and they had about 100 customers but it got to that point where that it wasn't worth their while you know because it, it if you're doing it as a hobby, it can really, once you get to it, it impacts on you and you can't really cope with it. So you either have to do it full time or not at all. And so there were several ones like that where I just took on their customer base. I paid them uh, a, a small sum of money to take it on. Uh, occasionally it's when uh, a business has gone bust. When uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the group. It's no, my brain's gone dead. There was a very big one that went bust in the nineties and they grew very quickly. And the name may come back to me. They even had, they had apps in Virgin comic stores and the States. I, 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 remember, I remember in the nineties, there was a, there was a there's a small chain of shops there's three of them in london called universal comics i remember they went bust wasn't that was it no it wasn't them no it was stateside they they grew very quickly they were trying to do it in a very professional manner but they grew too quickly and basically went bust and i bought off the receivers their mail order base <clears throat> um and then i found out why they'd gone bust really because it was a shambles they, oh. they <laughs> or either that or they just tried to destroy evidence to prove that they were in as big a debt as they were but i mean i've still got 20 years on from that 
or maybe longer, 25. I still got some of the customers who moved across from Stateside, and they were always grateful at the time because part of the deal with the was I didn't know how much money they lost to the state side, but I just honoured what they paid. So I'd saved some of them several hundred pounds because I just carried on supplying the comics. And I I saved Titan as they were uh, a lot of money because I took on the state side comic account and started uh, that way. But I did get a lot of people who were dubious. They thought that I was somehow part of stateside and it was a cunning way of getting rid of the stateside debt not honoring these orders but uh, th those who had faith or naivety but uh, i've always <laughs> been a man you can trust because you know if i say i'm going to do it that's what i do and i honored everybody who came to me i honored their comic orders and i've had some very faithful customers ever since still with me 25 years on so it wasn't that, but with economic comics, I was particularly interested uh, with that because I was considering re uh, getting a bespoke system set up. And then I discovered that um, the chap who'd written the program and was doing economic comics, he got to that point where it was encroaching on his personal life. He was a computer programmer anyway. And he decided that, no, he, he was going to concentrate on his job and his family. And um, so I came with a deal and I, I took on or took over economic comics and, and grown it and tweaked it since then. Uh, although, ironically, he came back into the fold later on. And I did have, uh, I'd bought Red Hot Comics over the years in Glasgow and it was becoming too much to handle something in Scotland and being downstairs. And so the, the chap who I bought economic comics off, he bought red hot comics off of me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he's now doing uh, a rival mail order service because he's a computer programmer. He's written uh, <laughs> his own. And, but we're, but we're best of friends. We have each other and yeah. we're, as I think most comic shop retailers are, because we're not, on one hand, we are competitors, mm -hmm. but we're not as, as fiercely determined to take over the world. And, uh, you know, you can all scratch each other's backs. And, and yeah. I would say 90% of the retailers I meet are a bit like that. And I will always do another retailer a favor if they find that, that they need something and I've got enough to them then that's fine i'm i'm happy to do it i'm a pay forward kind of guy yeah. i will give people comics in if you know in the retail industry <laughs> just to really understand should i need something later on, mm -hmm. they'll just say yeah that's all right we'll send it but if they never send me anything they might have someone you know who needs something they'll just pay it forward to them as well yeah uh, i think there's something to be said for healthy competition yeah you've got I wouldn't try to put someone out of business, get that aggressive. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, if they're in the next town, I, I might feel different if they set up a shop right next door to me. Yes. I might feel a bit <laughs> different. But, uh, you just, if you get absorbed in, in anger, you enjoy your own life. And so you don't have to work with whatever the situation is and work <clears throat> the best way possible. But if you get involved in a 
in a war or hate or anger mm -hmm. that will destroy you inside anyway so it's it, it uh, as you can see I, this is sort of attitude means i've never made a lot of money <laughs> but i mean it seems like you've kept a lot more of your happiness even if you don't have that millionaire kind of status oh yes oh yeah well that's ultimately i would have a box of friends than a box load of cash because that <laughs> yeah and the older you get the more i mean you i think you'll hear a lot of people as they get older say that because uh one of uh, our friends he had quite a high powered job for a, a japanese company that had branches over here and he he said to me only only earlier this he said i used to think i was really really important he's 70 now and he said i realize now what an idiot i was because <laughs> since he's because well he's he's taken stock he neglected well that sounds too strong a word but he neglected his wife and family to an mm -hmm. extent because he's obsessed with his job and he now realizes how important his wife and family are and he realizes that they are the most important thing to him now his job is now totally irrelevant and he wishes that certain things that he did for work mm -hmm. he says realize now i wasn't as important as I thought I was, because whoever's doing his job now is doing his job. That company's left. Yeah. And uh, it, oh, I've got to, oh, there's a picture of you come up, Mark, but it's not live. Anyway, oh, yeah. it's a scary photo. Oh, oh it's gone again now. Yeah, so it's really, this has nothing to do with comics, but no, family, friends, really, that is. Once you've covered your bases, obviously you need a roof over your head. You need enough money to keep yourself warm and feed yourself. But mm -hmm. the greatest wealth is close family and close friend. If you haven't got that, then then you're poor, even if you've got money. Yeah. So it seems like you've always kind of been ahead of the curve with, with the way that you are always adapting your business going forward. So when COVID hit, what kind of, like, what was it like to kind of, get through that first phase and then pick everything back up again? Uh, it was a lot easier than I thought it would be. I was a, a trifle concerned, especially when the contract stopped for a couple of months because mm -hmm. it's I've always likened it to a, a heavy lorry when it's going along the motorway and it suddenly has to break. You, there's, you've got the weight of... Uh, the lorry mm -hmm. pushing it forward even though you want to stop and the the way we, you work is you buy the product you then have four weeks or more to pay for it but you 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 should keep some money back any good businessman will say you should keep something in reserve but i used to have a reserve back in the early 2000s i spent my money on acquiring more shops and acquiring economic comics and then when the uh the economies of the world dropped and sunk without trace almost that was a really tough time for me because i suddenly thought oh crikey i haven't even got my reserve mm -hmm. and then i managed to get through that all right though and then it comes along and i thought well that's it i've i think i'm scuppered here because what do i do so i just rethought the way we did everything and uh, I've actually, I didn't have my shop stock online. I, I just sold new comics online and 
would operate from once lists and I've always kept in both, you know, all my shops would have a, a good range of back issues. But anyway, I started putting everything online and that's what saved us because I found that I had so much stuff built up over the years. People mm. in lockdown were looking at collections going, oh, I've, I've missed those issues. I'll go online and find them. So I was busy getting my staff to put everything online. And so our sales remained constant and I didn't spend anything for two or three months. So it was a massive cash flow input mm. that was there. And that enabled me to pay everyone's wages, pay the rent, and come out without any debts and a slightly better bank balance, in fact, at the end of it, because I managed to utilize all my stock that I'd got better. And I also don't open as many hours because I realized that we were being open seven days a week. Mm -hmm. And the shutdown proved to me, which I had been coming to this for anyway, you don't need to be open seven days a week you know we we found that uh, we were doing click and collect for local customers mm -hmm. so we were getting people coming in for that and then that then we opened up just for a few days and we found that being open three days a week believe it or not is more efficient than being open seven days and uh the hours no one specifically lost their jobs because of that because i was then turning them to do other things and uh now we don't have people idly coming in the shop because you, you would have people who come in, you felt busy, mm -hmm. but they were just looking. Right. And now we have three days when people come in to do their shopping. Yeah. Opposed you, to you've shortened the window and, and there's less opportunity to like, oh, I'll put it off until the next time. But when you actually go, right, it's yeah. like, I got I to gotta get what I want. That's it. And we, the number has dropped about 10%. Mm hmm I thought it might drop more. So I've, I'm doing, uh, what's the exact, I'm doing 40% of the hours, uh, but my turnover has only dropped 10%. So it's, it's actually very um, productive. And we're selling more online because I've, I've changed the way people are working. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, and uh, yes, stock control is even more key now as well. You've got to make sure that you are, selling more than you're buying mm -hmm. in. So what do you then, think the impact of like digital comics and not just necessarily digital sales, but also like this new uptick of creators moving over to platforms like Substack? Um, what kind of impact do you think that that's going to have going forward? Uh, well, I was never too bothered about digital comics in the first place. I know a lot of people were within the industry. But the digital has never really taken a full hold and talking to customers in the shop who were younger than me because I, I've, I've no interest in a digital comic because uh, I was asking people to come in, a teenager who was buying comics, said, well, why are you, without being rude, why are you buying a comic when you could buy them online? And, and they said exactly what I thought. They said, well, we, I would like to look at 50 comics a month and I'll look at 20 or so or whatever online. But he says it's a different thing to physically hold the comic. Mm -hmm. So they were in the physical thing because that was more enjoyable than the digital version. And in my mind, making a comic come to life means it's animated. And if you want to watch an animation, then you watch animation. Mm -hmm. But comics are a unique 
big blend of text and pictures, which not, not that anybody really thinks about this except people like me. It, it's a meld. Your brain works to create the movement, to create how you think they're speaking. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I need to have the visual to help me because, as I said, I, I can't actually see anything in my head. But I do get the sense of movement because there's little tricks in the art that when you're reading it, there is movement, even though there isn't any movement. And uh, the best way for you to sort of look at that is that sometimes, at some occasions, people do comics that are just photos with word balloons. Mm-hmm. And they just don't work. And the reason they just don't work is it is what it is. That's photos with word balloons. And art with word balloons is completely different because people like, say, Jack Kirby, who still can't leave his past from at his best. You read his comics and they're majestic, there's movement, and they're just wonderful. Whereas Alex Ross, a very good artist, but his is very static mm-hmm. because he's doing a picture of Superman or a picture of Green Lantern, and it's all not quite the same. It's, and being photorealistic is not actually the best best thing for comics you need to have someone who has a smell and the the other thing that you need when you're reading or even if you're watching things the less detail there is in a, a person's figure the more the reader can associate with it and think mm. that that's them so something like a lowry stick comic Anybody could be that person. I know that you'd have to read books by psychologists, but this is what it's all about. The the, um, the minimal picture actually creates a greater link with the reader mm-hmm. than the photorealistic art, which actually takes the reader out of the story because he's there just appreciating the art and not becoming part of it. So it's a long way tool bothers my digital comics and i find that the fact that the people who've had digital comics will then get their digital comic printed because they're not getting enough money from doing it online and also there's still people out there who aren't looking at the digital comics and want the physical thing to read and to mm-hmm. carry around in their pocket or on a train journey uh, and it's uh, and the same has happened. With There's now a decline in people buying the uh, the little tablets. I forget what they're called, where you can read a paperback. Sales of paperbacks are actually increasing, which mm-hmm. is counterintuitive because you'd have thought the paperbacks would be a struggling business now. But they're not because, in general, the, the human brain is uh, unique and it just likes the tactile. Yeah, well, I agree. And uh, and also, if you spend five pound on a digital, you've got nothing left at the end. But when you spend eight pound on a paperback, you do have something. Yeah. And you can pass it around, and you know, we we pass our books around amongst our friends, and uh, and I always make sure I look after them, and I give them to the charity shop can make a couple of quid out of the book. And that may then go to somebody else, and it's it's a whole 
it's a it's a much more holistic thing when something's printed uh, and uh, i i think the artists who are going solo on these things will find it difficult to make a living from it and going digital because uh, you need to be linked up to the whole fan base and the mm -hmm. fan base is much more physical than digital do you think it that's may why, happen well i was gonna say do you think that's why like some creators have taken a chance with substack because substack have given them money and um where if they probably had just gone on substack on their own without the because substack have given them like a like a grant or something to come across to substack but they probably may not have taken the chance to move over to this it's like a news well, no, that's it, yeah I'm, I'm sure that is the case because it would be very chancy someone have to be young and just starting to take a chance and go with that system i mean uh, just thinking about music now but arctic monkeys always sticks in my mind as like the first group that went on their own they went on online and they played their music and they became big but they now produced records that uh, they're not just solely digital even mm. something like the arctic monkeys who i thought were would lead the way but it in the end you need uh, audiences where you physically go and play to because you need a connection with music. And so if you're just online, you certain people, very few people, will make a great deal of money. But in, in the main, it comes down to the physicality of whatever you're doing, be it the theatre, the movies, comics, books. A digital has a part. They're not being completely Luddite there, and they have their, their, their role for certain people, and certain people will prefer a digital. Uh, I won't deny uh, or try to pretend there isn't an enjoyment from them. But I think in the main, that we, we all coexist and the majority will be done physically. I, I don't, I pick up a lot of digital books, but that's because I'm trying something that I've never read before. If it turns out yeah. that I do enjoy it, I will turn around and pick up a physical copy. Um, I think one of the only books that I've done that with lately is the new Wonder Girl series from DC. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, just because Joelle Jones and her artwork is some of my favorite stuff. Um, and so I picked it up digitally because we were in a hurry to kind of record our episode. But the next time I was at the shop, I went back and I picked up all of the physical copies that uh, I had missed out on so far. So, yeah. I mean, the... Old comics used to have a letters page. There would be editorial content, and you will became, or I felt, and lots of people also did, of the genre. Now, when they produce comics, letters pages are few and far between. Um, some old school creators like Al Ewing with the Immortal Hulk involved all of his readers, and you can tell the difference uh, just looking at my spreadsheets. The Immortal Hulk's run, or, or purchases, shall I say, from not print run, never faltered. It was always the same. Sometimes went up a bit and plateaued, then went up a bit. Any other comic starts up, shall we say, at 100 a month, and then you have this curve coming down, and it just drops, and it drops, and interest fades, because there's nothing to bind the reader to the title. Mm -hmm. But with the Immortal Hulk and Al Ewing, there was always communication sometimes three well most often three pages of communication and he was there giving his thoughts 
talking about how he was coping with uh, COVID and, uh, and the isolation. And that was nice. That was a friend. It, the Immortal Hulk or its creation was your friend. And so he had a very solid base that carried on all the way through. And um, But there aren't enough of people like that. So you will get more prints, um, purchases, if you engage the reader. But Marvel and DC just don't seem to have that in them anymore. They don't care. They're just going... I don't think DC has any letters pages, I don't think, in anything. I think Marvel have a really? few, but it's mainly the independents that have some sort of letters page or newsletter yeah. at the end. Yeah. I think the yeah. last the last one that we read that had something like that was that Texas Blood. Um, like at the end of each episode, they were tell each episode, each issue, they would tell you, like, thanks for reading. This is what we've got coming up next. This is where this story yeah. came from. And keep an eye out for XYZ coming up soon. So yeah. I, you do appreciate that. Yeah, and uh, and some of the creators will talk to you about what music they were listening to whilst writing this. There'll, there'll be a little bit in there. This is in some of the comics I used to read, and that was just out of interest. I was, you know, listening to Pink Floyd's "Dark Side of the Moon" because that put me in the zone to write this particular story, or it might have been Black Sabbath. It could have been, uh, you know, anything Elton John or whatever yeah. band because what set them in in the mood to read uh to create and then readers would write in and say ah oh, yeah well when i'm reading your comics i like to listen to some punk music or i like uh, jazz or i like garage and then you get a communication that runs outside of the <laughs> the actual storyline where readers keep <laughs> writing in talking about this uh as well as the comic and uh it, once again, that used to be the first part of the comic I'd go to, to the letters pages to see what my friends in different parts of the world are saying, what music they're listening to. And, and also, they, oh, I might try that. Yes, yeah. I'll, I'll give that one. But my, yeah, my go-to yeah, music. I was going to say, no, I used to, I really do agree with you. I, when I got into comics, I used to love the letters page. I used to literally read like every letter in the... Uh, in the back of the comic, I used to really get into the letters pages. And when they started to cut letters pages, I actually was really disappointed when they got rid of those. So uh, yeah. it's interesting to hear your thoughts, though, that comics that involve readers, actually, like at the end, keep their fan base longer than those that don't. That's quite an interesting thing yeah. to hear. So, Well, as a fan, though, you want to be able to feel like you do have that connection, even if you never, ever engage with them on social media or anything else. But it, it feels personal when at the end of a book, it's sort of like uh, one of my friends when the final Harry Potter book came out and at the very beginning, like JK Rowling thanks the reader. And she was like, it just, JK Rowling would know me from a hole in the wall, but like it, it still meant something that I put all my time and effort into these, into the series. And then in the very last book, it's dedicated to the reader. Like that's, it, yeah. it just means something. It is because if they've not got the time to at least acknowledge that, then they get attacked. Uh, and most paper, yeah, most of the paperbacks I read. I mean, one of the things I like doing, I go to, I go to the afterword, the back of the book, where some of the authors talk a lot about what drove them to write this particular book. Because I like to read that because I find that sets me up for then reading the story because I feel it has a an extra little bit to what I'm reading. Mm -hmm. uh, don't give anything away. If, if I start to see that, if they, if they go spoiler alert, I go back and I'll read the book and then read it, <laughs> read that bit later. Um, but yes, it's, 
it's nice to know. It also shows a bit of care because if that they do actually have an interest in the story. It's not obviously they do it to make money, but it's more than just to make money. It's it's a a living, breathing thing to them, and they want to communicate that to uh, the reader. Mm-hmm. I was, was going to say um, thanks for sort of covering off, I guess, like your history of the shop and your thoughts on comics. What I'd love to know is we we, we um, ask some people like recommendations and. Um, what what we have is a separate monthly podcast where we do like a central what we, what people consider like a central graphic novel. So we call it late to the party because we go back and we read things like um, like Mouse or Why the Last Man or the first volume of March, and we go back and try and pick things that's slightly older but things that people always talk about. And we just wondered what really would be something that you would consider a central graphic novels that people should read i know there's probably hundreds that you could think of maybe you know because obviously with your time in the industry but just um you know is there any sort of top two or three that you always come back to and recommend to people well there's this isn't actually a superhero one there's a, a book called rosalie lightning rosalie. sorry it's called it's called, it's called, it's called rosalie lightning it's um i'll get it off the shelf so i can get the author's name but basically the book is they had a three-year-old daughter that died which is very sad but he felt he had to part of his coping mechanism was to do a graphic novel about this which sounds an odd thing to want to read but it is the most remarkable graphic novel i've ever read because he he uses very different ways of uh, getting over the emotions at the time. Mm-hmm. And it's a very, very clever use of panels. And um, I, if anyone to me says, why do you read comics? I always recommend this book. Hold on one second. Uh, it's, it's quite a well-known independent creator. It's Tom Hart. And it's... It, well, it's just absolutely wonderful. I mean, it's not art, as uh, it's not colour, it's black and white. It we find a lot of these essential graphic novels, by the way, are black and white. Yeah, it. I would recommend that to anyone. Uh, one, it is so different from superheroes. I think, I mean, I, I'd be more than superhero. A lot of people don't think that... <laughs> comics or anything but superheroes. I mean, I had someone who got fed up with Marvel a few years back. So I'm giving up on comics because I really don't like what Marvel are doing. And I said, well, why don't you try an image book or Rosalie Lightning? Or he said, why should I do that? And I said, well, they're comics. He said, no, they're not. <laughs> yeah, she said, <laughs> because to him, comics were Marvel comics. And because Marvel had left, that was it. He was off. Uh, missing the point that it's a medium like any medium uh you know if you watch television you see a wide range of subjects don't you yes. I mean, yeah <laughs> you'll watch a documentary or watch a cartoon you you all sorts of stuff likewise with paperbacks uh there's a particular style paperback i like i like um detective ones but i read more than that and the same with comics you just they're wonderful in their own um context but yes rosalie lightning i would really recommend that and uh, but i still totally love 
trash comics, possibly, like Marvel 2-in-1. I would, if you just want to read a good, fun comic, uh, if you... I don't know if Marvel are printing those now, but I've got the essential one. Uh, I'm rereading the Marvel 2-in-1s. I mean, I used to get the comics. They were a comic that I didn't try and replace after I sold mine. But they still held up. Uh, obviously, it's the obligatory two heroes decide they're going to have a punch-up because they don't like each other. Then they come the best of buddies, and then they sort out the problem. But uh, remarkably fun. So Marvel 2-in-1. And I would recommend uh, Stanley's Silver Surfer, uh, the original 18 issues still stand head and shoulders about above everything else and uh i'm trying to think because it's one of those things you asked me that i'd have to go and stop and think and it'd take me about 10 minutes and i'll give you a big long list of about 50 <laughs> uh, and i think it helped to understand how comics work so if you read any of the scott mcleod books like understanding comics or the writing of comics I think they they really opened up my eyes and enabled me to enjoy the reading of comics a lot more once I understand how they're created. Mm -hmm. I, I understand why certain comics I read, and I thought, I really don't like that. And then if you, really, if you really understand comics, you then discover that's because the artist didn't know how to draw a comic. <laughs> Not in so much he can draw pictures. He didn't understand layout. Yeah. And if you get the layout, right then the story flows and you just enjoy the art uh, and i suppose the same applies to even right reading a book sometimes my wife is what are you what are you grilling about i said i've just finished this book and i don't know why because it's still using words <laughs> and the words are always used that was wonderful they just put the words together in such a marvelous way it, it, it makes me think, I want to understand how they put words together and it was beautiful and someone else can put words together and you're bored. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so Scott McCloud helps you understand how someone can put a comic together and you totally enjoy it. And another time you just totally left cold. And if you, know, if you understand uh, how comics can be done, then you understand why you didn't like something. Beside it, it may be that you didn't like the story content maybe other times it could be I, I read something i don't know why and so i would recommend those anyway oh brilliant um i just want to say thank you for your time um this episode i really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to to speak to us um on the podcast and find out more about like your history and just hearing your passion about comics is, is just so 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 thrilling for us to hear and yeah and your insight well. about decades in in the business that was very informative so thank you so much well that's oh well that's i'm afraid i mostly did go off a, a tangent because that's no that's fine the, we love that we love that uh, that's all right then but it's once i start talking about it and you the brain dredge, dredges up things you then realize how much you've done whereas sometimes i think i haven't done a lot and then you start thinking oh you want to do that i did do that yeah and, uh, <laughs> and just in case I, I just economic comics i bought off a, a young man called simon mott he was the I, man i actually met him a long time ago yeah lovely lovely man and so he he and he when i first met him he was very worried about digital comics that's one of the reasons i think he was going to pull out of it because he thought 
comics would die. And I remember being on a panel at a convention with him. And afterwards, he came up to me. This is how we got to meet. He said, so you don't really, you're not worried about digital comics. And I explained, as I did to you, and he went away and he wasn't co totally convinced at the time. But later on, he did say, you were right about digital comics. <laughs> uh, but we stayed friends. And as I said, he bought Red Hot Comics from me. So because he'd moved up to Scotland now, he lives up and so he's red hot comics main order and uh set up another he he's, he asked me to buy economic comics back and i said no i've made too good a job of it so I'm gonna have to set up. <laughs> uh but as i said because we can be friendly competitors and we're still friends uh it, it's okay but anyway um, I'll, i talk for england so no I no no uh, well, we we should have to arrange to have you back another day like um maybe on one of our uh, late to the party episodes or something like that. And, uh, yeah. but we'll, okay. um, but, um, all anyway, right. So for our next episode, uh, we'll be kicking off October horror fest. We'll be doing a double bill of, uh, a quiet place one and a quiet place two. And don't forget, we did start a second podcast series where we tackle some of the most essential graphic novels of all time. Our 10th late to the party, uh, book club episode was why the last man by Brian K. Vaughn and Pia Guerra. That episode marks our one-year anniversary of book club, so please be sure to check that out. And because uh, we do discuss some of our favorite episodes in the series, then in October our book club is going to be Batman: The Long Halloween by Jeff Loeb and Tim Stale or Sale, Tim Sale. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, so online we are geeks and niche everywhere: Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And um, Martin, where can people find you in bricks and mortar and online? Oh, well, you can find us in uh, Colchester, Bricks and Mortar, at uh, 42 Cole Street East, and in South End, 26 Clarence Street, which is just off the main high street, uh, pedestrian high street in South End, uh, nearer the seafront than the uh, centre of South End. And online, it's acecomics.co.uk. Just visit the website, and there's everything there for you comics supplies and uh, i have got a bit lazy i used to have my biff spit every month i have been lazy during lockdown and not uh, had a waffle on that i must start that <laughs> up again. but uh, yeah so it's that's where we are thank you very much and uh, i hope you found what i said was interesting oh no we have um, yeah no, i really appreciate it it's been no it's been really insightful i've really enjoyed it yeah definitely um, thank you very much thank you so much Thank you very much. Right, um, you have a good day, Martin. Bye.